Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you with a Black History Month special. This week on the podcast, it's Flashback February. Inspired by last year's Black History Month compilation episode, this week I've selected Locally speaking, mindset hacking, and solutionscaping excerpts from conversations over the past year. Starting with the science mercenary, Dr. Hakim Olusheyi, on how reconceptualizing our ideas on time and how the evolutionary continuum of human intelligence need not be as complicated as we think. Cognitive behavioral research scientist, Dr. Julene Christopher, reinforces his thoughts by introducing us to her mindset hack, a technique called positive intelligence, and how a commitment to telling ourselves and living a story contrary to those embedded in social injustice are at the bedrock of her activism. Cultural practitioner Kobe Graham furthers the story as he elaborates on his mindset hack, collaboration, and how its revival in the African psyche is critical to progress. Communication specialist and cultural curator, Samba Yonga, then illustrates how our African histories reinforce this collaborative ethic and is using her museum as a narrative activism necessary to reinform a new now. And finally, globally speaking, the moneymaker, Eric Collins, puts his money where his mouth is, investing in the change that he and his partners at Impact X Capital intend to see in Black communities across Europe. The common thread in my selections is activism, which is the why of Black History Month. Waking each morning in parts of the world, rife with injustice, is in itself an act of courageous resistance. We must challenge ourselves to uplift untold stories and unheard voices so that by valuing global Black histories, we can collectively build, simply put, a better today. That is the definition of global citizenship. And now, Dr. Hakim Olusheyi. One of the first things I realized was, I said to myself, I looked at the people around me and I was like, man, you guys are ultra educated, mm-hmm. but you're not intrinsically smarter than around the people I grew up around, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, with regards to myself, I was like, okay, you guys are all way better educated than me, but can't none of you outwork me, mm-hmm. right? So I'm gonna, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. nose to the grindstone. I'm gonna catch you, and I'm gonna surpass you. Right. Give me a few years. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's no way around the hard work, and exactly. it just takes time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and when you're inefficient at it, when you're young, right now, I know that given a good problem. You know, I could be the world's expert in some topic in like 18 to 24 months. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Because you have a system. You you understand yeah, exactly. how to go through the rigors. You understand yeah. all of that. Exactly. Yeah. It's very efficient yeah. now just yeah. getting there to the yep. point. Right? Sure. Yeah. Sure, and when sure. you're young and inefficient, you, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you yeah. just don't know the system, how to do it. Yet, right. Right? It's, right. It's like LeBron playing basketball now versus young LeBron. Right. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. 
He's he just had smoother. all of that athletic talent, but the efficiency was just, you know, mm-hmm. not the same. Mm-hmm. Now he gets the same thing done with a lot less motion. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's a good segue into my mindset hack yeah. question. Yeah. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? One yeah. that you know, one that you practice, one that you can imagine. Yeah, I have had to hack my mindset all my life okay. to get myself through things. I tell myself things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this come came out of physics for me. Mm-hmm. It's not anything it's like what you know there's a lot of discoveries that i make that i discover while already discovered mm-hmm. <laughs> going all the way back to college mm-hmm, right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so of course albert einstein discovered this first figured this out first but i was sitting thinking one day i think about space and time a lot and a foundational physicist one of the founders of astroparticle physics this guy named rocky cobb also from new orleans but he spent his entire career in chicago mm-hmm. we were having dinner one night back in 2003 in mm-hmm. chicago and we we're talking about having these deep insights to make really revolutionary changes in physics and how we understand the universe. And he said, yeah, man, it's like that Mark Twain saying, it's an apocryphal Mark Twain saying, it's not what you don't know, it's what you know that ain't so, mm. right? And you know, he talked about at that moment, in that conversation, how Albert Einstein, you know, with his his revolution in space and time, you know, turned over what we all thought we knew to be true, which right. wasn't, right? Right, right. So anyway, I started thinking about what do we know? What could it, I possibly know that ain't so, right? And, you know, I also think about like, what could different realities be that I wouldn't be able to do an experiment to differentiate between them? Because ultimately, mm-hmm. it comes down to what you observe to be true sure. is what is true, right? Sure. And you do that through experiments or rigorous observations, right? Yeah. So in that thinking, I thought to myself, I was like, you know, time. You and I are sitting here next to this microphone and we call this moment that we're sharing now. Mm -hmm. And we believe collectively as humans that our now is the actual now of the universe. That there's that history that led up to this moment and now this now is the actual real now. But then I thought, I was like, but wait, every conscious being who has ever lived or who will ever live has that exact same thought. So what makes my now the actual now? This means to me now that all timelines are co-equal and all times are co-equal. Now, the way Einstein expressed this was in a letter to a bereaved friend who had lost her spouse. Mm -hmm. I think she was a woman. Mm -hmm. And basically he said, you know, don't be so sad because if you could see time the way God does, it's just all out there, Mm -hmm. you know? So one way of thinking of it is, you know, when the universe began, you and I were here having this conversation, Mm -hmm. right? So anyway, how do I use that as a mind hack? Mm -hmm. I say to myself, as far as I know, it's already a billion years from now and I'm already dead. So mm-hmm. what is there to be embarrassed about? What is there to hold back about? So a lot of this stuff that I do as performance, yeah. like how do you come across well as a voice actor? How do you come across well on camera? It's really simple. Be yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Be true to your real emotions. Mm-hmm. Be who you really are yeah. in that contrived moment, right? right? And right. But it's so hard, right? It's so hard. We, we, we often will be, be what we think we're supposed to be. I but you know, if you like look at TED Talks, they all yeah. kind of talk the same. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah it's a it's yeah. a style. Yes. Right? Because that's what I do as a TED Talk. <laughs> and, and, and <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and the same thing goes yeah. with yeah. different careers. Sure. Right. Yeah. Businesses talk like physicists, mm-hmm. teachers, you know, it, mm-hmm. and so that's why I personally don't talk like a physicist. 
Right, you I, know. I, I'm purposefully ebonic Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yourself, know? yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. just being myself because yeah. I'm also showing that I talk this way, but hell yeah, I'm brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not brilliant because I'm smart. I don't believe in smart. Mm. It's it's what has actually been accomplished, mm-hmm. right? It is, mm-hmm. it is, don't talk to me, don't ask me, go look at the work, go look up the papers, go right. look up the patents. Right. That's what it is, yeah. right? Talk to the people who've had the impact. That's the real, that's the real thing. Yeah. And yeah, I talk like this. Yeah, yeah I need to go to a dentist. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we judge each other yeah. on these shallow things. Sure. And one thing that, you know, I see myself as a human human, right you know i'm in this sci-fi world right mm-hmm. so i want to see one planet all working together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm like if we could do that we would be star trek tomorrow yes but we're always trying to one-up each other we're all you know we're doing right. all these, the hierarchies yeah, yeah all the hierarchies yeah. all the yeah. bs all, right. all this stuff and sure. it's like let's just be productive have yeah. you know work together and just be dope right yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's that's my mind hack that I use. I absolutely love that. And I just amusing with the thought that I wonder what our challenge is evolutionarily from the physical form that makes us continue to default to yeah, default right, to that right. to that piece. And so that's uh, one of the big well, signs. I'll tell you what my interpretation is of our latest evolution. Okay. So our latest evolution goes by two letters, AI. Yes. Artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And what AI is showing seems to be really close to actual intelligence, right? Sure. So they're like, if you just take chat GPT, the initial manifestation of chat GPT was basically copy and paste, right? Yes. I'm predicting the yes. next word, but really I'm taking what already exists and kind of sending it back to you. Yeah. But there are these experiments that the researchers did with the chat GPT-4 mm-hmm. where it actually shows thought. Like for example, mm-hmm. I was listening to uh, an interview, a podcast with this one guy who was a researcher, and he said, you know, I was thinking about what tests I could give it. Because if you give it all the information on the internet, and now you want to test it, how do you test it with something it's never seen before? Right. So he was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. It's not a drawing AI, but maybe it can draw. So I'm going to ask it, use this very obscure programming language and give me a code to draw a unicorn. Mm-hmm. And so based on the limits of that code, it couldn't draw like a really vivid unicorn, yeah. but it could draw basically using rectangles and ovals and yeah. triangles, the shape of a unicorn. It's like, there it was, right. right? So then they're like, okay, let's do it like this. Let's take this code and modify it to remove the unicorn's horn, horn mm-hmm. and rotate it so it doesn't even look like a unicorn anymore. And say, here's a code of a unicorn, put the horn on his head put a horn on his head with mm-hmm. triangle mm-hmm. and it did it right mm-hmm. so something that doesn't even look like a unicorn mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so this level of thought now the next thing is there is a recent result in anthro archaeoanthropology or whatever you call it mm-hmm. where this these early humans called Niletis yeah in this cave in South Africa mm-hmm. they found these bodies deep in this cave yeah and so there's two things that humans began to do 78,000 years ago. These cats were doing it 160, like the first evidence of humans burying the dead, 78,000 years ago. Sure. These bones could be potentially as old as 500,000 years ago, but minimally like 300,000 years Mm. ago. And so Mm -hmm. caching is when you take, like when you look at uh, the Dogon, where they have all the bodies and the caves Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the cliffs right there, Mm -hmm. that's called caching. Mm -hmm. Burying the dead, so two of the skeletons are completely intact, or in these 
oval shaped depressions mm -hmm. where it looked like based on the the way it's disturbed sure. like they were actually buried and then at the same location they they have cave markings like they were you know doing tombstones or sure, cave walls sure, or something sure, like sure, that, sure, right? sure. now all other anthropologists are like well you can't say it was them that did it because you can't really date those it could have been some later humans that came in there but the burying and caching thing are still pretty amazing but here's the thing those cats had really tiny brains yeah. just like AI has a really tiny brain today. Right. So what this is saying to us is we thought intelligence was this, our super brain, we slowly developed it and we're so unique. Yeah. But really, intelligence may be really easy is the thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe all we're doing yeah. is predicting the next word. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. you know, so we've given it this sort of like aura of amazingness. But now we're seeing that Oh, maybe, and, and you know, you look at like, you know, chimpanzees use spears to yeah. kill monkeys, right. right? They use simple stone tools that, yep. you know, humans were in the stone age for 2 million years yeah. before we, before we came out, right? right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Before we started doing metals and, mm -hmm. and such, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, the early pre-human, pre-homo sapiens humans who were doing this stuff, yeah. if nothing else, they showed that these homo naledis were doing this for generations. Right. To do something disorganized required a type of communication yeah. beyond what chimpanzees and gorillas are doing. Mm -hmm. It requires some sort of language, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't think other brains were capable of that, but it looks like maybe they were. Right. Now we see that the computer overnight is capable of that. I love that you said yeah. intelligence is much easier than we think it is. Yeah. Because because I think if that were spoon-fed to every child, oh yeah. Then where would we be in this world? Yeah. You know, we would yeah. we would have these amazing people who are just doing everything that is a, you know, counter to the hierarchies, counter to everything. Right. Well, yeah. you know the the other problem is one of the things I love about the Hakeem, I thought I was dumb until I met you, mm -hmm. is, you know, I'll be walking in the mall. Yeah. And some man and his kids will come up to me and they're like, you know, the way he speaks, I know he's from the undereducated community just like me. Sure. Right? Sure. And he was like, yeah, man, you made me re this is what people have said to yeah. them, quoting people, right? Yeah. yeah. Man, you made me rethink my relationship with, with science. I think now I'm going to go to college and do this because we always talk about educating the children. Mm -hmm. You cannot educate the children without educating the people older than the it's children. It's true. Their caretakers are, are, are pivotal. Yeah. I also recognize, and you and I have talked about this before, where you recognize that you have to provide opportunities, right, for mm -hmm. people to be able to find a way or to help facilitate helping them to be able to find a way. And so that's where, for example, another project that I'd worked on with it's called Redemption Botanicals. And so in Illinois, when the governor at the time, big things, the platforms that he was running on was to legalize cannabis. And so the idea was, okay, well, I'm going to legalize this. It's going to provide a great revenue opportunity. But then like myself and, and many others who are in that community 
was asking, well, what happens to the people who had been incarcerated, especially those that were coming from BIPOC community, Black, Mm -hmm. Indigent, and people of color, right? So the question was, what happens to them? Do they get their records expunged? And then do they get the opportunity to be able to be able to be participants? To participate in the, the, yeah, the industry, like to be legitimized. Correct, right? And so Redemption Botanicals came from that desire where we brought together a group of people who were investors, they had backgrounds in business and finance and training, behavioral sciences, and we had the minority ownership helping what were called social equity applicants, right? So these are the people who would be the ones that were incarcerated or had some particular issue. And so if they were interested in getting a license, in our case, we helped to be able to fund them getting the license and and creating that opportunity that would help them to learn about what it would take to be able to run such a business, right? Because it's capital intensive and so many regulations and there's so many hoops to jump through and so many ways of just becoming so overwhelming. And so we created a partnership to be able to help people who are, who are seeking to do that. And, and so where does that stand now? Have you, the law has been passed. How are you seeing mm-hmm. it actually, you know, impacting the community and, and those formerly incarcerated? My understanding, so because we live in Minnesota, my partner and I were the ones participating in Redemption Botanicals, which was created in Illinois, the records were expunged. There were were hundreds upon hundreds of records. The since about 2018, 2019, and even until now, there were not enough licenses that were available for all of the hundreds of people who put in applications, right? And the local government was trying to figure out how to address those issues as well as many others that presented themselves because there were a lot of of obstacles, a lot of opportunities, and, and trying to find creative ways to make sure that the process was equitable um, was a little bit of a challenge. So um, unfortunately, there were some lawsuits uh, mm-hmm. that were put into place to just basically make sure that there were more opportunities in terms of licenses going into lotteries, for example, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that you could have a fair chance at it. So we're still in the process of going through all of the legal challenges right now. But there are some people who did get licenses to open up dispensaries and grow facilities. And we're still moving through that process. I mean, it's it's fairly young, I guess. So we'll we'll see what the next three to five years brings because I think it's just like across the board in New York, the same thing. I think that's the the major push now, you know, just like there's big agriculture now, there's big cannabis that really focusing on the communities that have been disadvantaged because of the legal system is real. This is called a real. So. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for that work. So speaking of mindset and as a behavioral psychologist, <laughs> I'm sure mindset is something that you, you think about quite often. So tell us what your favorite or innovative mindset hack is. So this is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Wow. So in the last probably uh, two years, 
I have been working on, if you will, quieting the saboteurs, the inner voices that keep you up at night, Mm -hmm. that force the ruminating thoughts, that foster self-doubt, you know, those voices that make you less compassionate towards yourself and others because you're just too busy either judging yourself or others or a particular situation. And when you do that, it becomes very counterproductive. So I have really made it my goal to quiet those saboteurs, those judges, the victim saboteurs. There was this wonderful program that my partner introduced me to called Positions. And the founder and and creator is just, you know, he did a lot of basic hacks, if you will, that are very similar to the idea of Beyond the Fork and that interpersonal play. And and he packaged it in just such a brilliant way in in little small bite-sized pieces to help promote mindfulness. And, you know, I love that word saboteurs because that's exactly what those ruminating thoughts do. Yeah, most definitely. The doubt. Yeah. That just kind of take you away from the present. And you, what was that? Agenics? What did you call it? Oh, positive intelligence. Positive intelligence. Ah, okay. So folks, always we have good show notes. So that'll be in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's a, that sounds like a great hack. Okay. So our time is slowly drawing to a close. I could obviously, you know, we, you and I can gab for forever, but I want to be mindful (laughs) of your time. So I want to ask a little bit more about, let's go back over the ocean and talk a little bit more about what's next and new and how you see yourself moving forward with the um, St. Bernard's Hill House. Absolutely. So in terms of St. Bernard's Hill House, honestly, my vision for the Virgin Islands, both U.S. and British, is to create an economic engine, the island equivalent of the Black Wall Street, powered primarily mm-hmm. by young entrepreneurs of color mm-hmm. who own property and businesses. And I really want to impress on your listeners that I'm 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 really grateful for my partnerships with non-BIPOC individuals who understand that in order to have true collaboration with BIPOC folks, you don't lead from the front. You learn, you listen, right. you participate, you sit with, and you don't stand in front. You actually act as a conduit to provide access, which at times that can mean actually giving up your seat at the table. So I am really profoundly grateful to the partnerships that I've I've had with non-BIPOC people because that has really helped to provide meaningful ways to be a differences in the British Virgin Islands and So with St. Bernard's Hill House, it is my desire, for example, that if someone is working with us who, you know, has literacy challenges and they want to be to increase their literacy. I want to make sure that my team can make that happen. If, you know, it's important for us 
that if they're signing contracts, for example, people sign contracts all the time and they find themselves in trouble because they don't have good contract acumen, that people understand, you know, the contractors that work with us, they understand what they're signing. It's important also to make sure that people have, who are working with us, they, you know, have financial literacy, for example. All of those things, I am hoping that when people hear Cotera, the company, or they hear, hear St. Bernard's Hill House, they know that it's a place where we practice fair compensation, where people, it's, it's a wonderful environment to work in, right? And so that's, for me, one of the ways to be able to kind of distribute that collaborative mindset into the community to be able to to hopefully make some type of a difference. What is it like to open or to create a museum? Right. So the museum was is very fascinating the way it came about. It's kind of linked to already the, the story of why Kwatenga Media was also set up. Mm-hmm. We set it up as a way to kind of shift the narratives of Africa. And then the more we got into that space and started understanding, you know, the dynamics of our political and social history and the impact of on our contemporary lives, for example, what our historical education has done to how we understand how we live in our societies. For example, why do people live in shanty compounds? You know, why is it only, you know, settler white people who control companies? Why is it that, you know, when we're making business decisions at a very high economic level with politicians, we're always deferring to the foreign companies? Why don't, you know, all that stuff we came across during our work with Kwatenga and we I always wanted to understand why we make certain decisions as Zambians. And it's not only Zambians, you'd see it play out in other countries as well. So I need, I'd always speak to uh, Mulenga Kapwepa, who was a cultural and historical specialist, and she would often tell these stories of our indigenous culture and then also our colonial and post-colonial experience. And it started becoming apparent to me that it had something more to do with how our experience of colonialism and post-colonialism affects how we make decisions and still affects how we make decisions. And I wanted to go deeper into that, into understanding the why. And then it started becoming more apparent that if we dig deep into the why and find a way to counter it, maybe this is something that could start transforming how we view ourselves, which inevitably impacts how we make decisions. And a lot of those things we found in our history, because when we understand how we would interact historically, how our source communities made decisions, the democratic way, you know, they entered negotiations or the nutritional aspect of how we lived or the leadership roles that we had historically, they made much more sense. They were much more democratic, they were much more engaging, in- inclusive, and it resulted in communities that were harmonious, that were productive. And we started wondering why we don't borrow from that. Like, why doesn't 
contemporary Zambia borrow from what was obviously a very valuable knowledge system. And we realized it had a lot to do with our own identity crisis and inferiority. I, I would call it a collective inferiority where colonialism disrupted and devalued who we were. And we had been unable since then to kind of like reclaim our own value. And it became apparent that this is the work that we need to do to try and reclaim that value and restore who we were as as, as a people. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And that's the museum, yeah. Okay, okay. So getting down to the actual curation and thinking about the vision for taking it from a digital concept to a physical concept to a, a center that might be someplace where people are actually coming together and scholarship and all those things. How, where, five years on, where, where are you and where do you see yourself moving next? Right. So I think, you know, when we started, we didn't uh, think that it would end up or even get to the stage. I think it was, it was an experiment in many, in many ways it still is. The reason why we set it up as a digital space is that we didn't want to wait for a building for us to be able now to start communicating the work that we're doing. And I think that has really worked well because we've been able then to uh, democratize the space and we've been able to do research and collaborate and, and produce work that has become new knowledge, uh, that has become new knowledge that is being used, that is being consumed um, and new ways of museum making, because that's a big discussion now. The discourse is really huge in terms of entangled memories, the idea of museum making and the future of museums, big part of the uh, conversation in the space. And we feel very privileged that we're able to be a part of that conversation and contribute to it, such that now when we're building the museum, we're working on the actual physical structure of the museum. It will allow us to reimagine museums in a new way. Because remember, museum is not African. The concept of a museum right. is a very European and Eurocentric way of producing knowledge. But it is the standard of producing knowledge. And even when we know that museum knowledge in terms of ethnographic collections they have from Africa are highly problematic, very distorted, uh, decontextualized and dislocated. So all, all the knowledge that is contained there is already problematic. And now there is a big wave to kind of like undo a lot of that work. And even as we're building our museum, we're very conscious of that and want to be aware that we're not repeating the same infrastructural ecosystem that is Eurocentric. We're thinking of what a museum would look like for a, for an African purpose. Um, and we, do, we don't have museums in Africa. The concept of museums doesn't exist in Africa. We live our histories, you know, in our right. communities. They're lived histories. And so we're bringing that into the museum space as well. And that's a huge consideration for us. Hmm. Yeah, I guess when I think about it, I mean, would, would our museums have been monuments? Like, is that is that how we've lived it? But then somehow we've also passed down our histories, right? And passed down our stories. Yeah. And so I guess our, our museum concepts are our people. Yes, exactly. 
so that we store our knowledge in the people, so that we call them knowledge keepers, so they're oral archives. And for, me, for many reasons, obviously, one of the reasons why we're excavating that knowledge from the oral archives and documenting it is because they pass on. In, in, our, in the ancient times, why we were able to maintain those living histories is because it was a very well-practiced ritualistic uh, practice where from generation to generation, the oral archive was passed on and passed on and passed on. And, you know, it's through our objects um, that we created, that history and knowledge remained. But because of historical, political and social disruptions, that no longer happens. So obviously we have to think of a new way of storing and preserving these narratives. And this is some of the work that we're, we're trying to develop. One of my favorite themes that you can trace through the history of Ghanaian music is not just Ghanaian music, African music, men who are mourning the fact that their woman has left them yes. for a richer man. Yeah. <laughs> so if Classic. you think of Premier Gao, yeah. that's what they're singing. That song is literally yeah. a guy who is singing his right, pain. Right, right. Or that song, that's the theme of that song. Azingele by Rough and Smooth. There are so many. I feel like you could do a compilation album dedicated to jilted jilted, jilted men. men yeah and then you have the flip the late ebony rains who she's just like yes i am the one who's doing the jilting <laughs> yeah like right. if you break my heart i'll date your father uh-huh you know uh-huh yeah yeah and so it's it, so yeah there have been feelings yes but generally speaking the music is about having a good time and escaping sure right yes but not so much anymore. Yeah, and it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of the times. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. like yeah. a lot more emphasis and understanding on mental health. Yep, yep. And that, I feel, has been a bit more prominent in the alternative space for longer mm-hmm. and is now entering the mainstream. Right. So speaking of different genres mm-hmm. and thought, let's talk about mindset. Okay. Gonna ask you what your mindset hack is. <laughs> so I okay. ask you to, yeah. to share your favorite or an innovative mindset hack. Now this mm. is one that you practice, okay. one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Okay. So what I would say is one of the things that I've always believed in, and that I'm comforted to see more of, mm-hmm. is collaboration over competition. So when we were doing Dust, for example, once in a while, some new magazine would pop up mm-hmm. and people would say, oh, you guys have competition now. And I'd be like, why would they be competition? Right. We, we would actually call them up and be like, can we help you guys? Are exactly. there any ways we could help you? Yeah. Which is just, that's not how Ghanaian business tends to operate. Right. Yeah. But I think that it has a past and it has a future in the sense that we, like I was saying, the African spirit is a communal spirit. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that we do that have community in mind. Mm-hmm. And that's the way culturally we have been. For all the colonial influence and everything, there are certain things that we just like you just can't take away. And so in as much as we can be as capitalistic and individualistic and stuff, 
I think that the spirit of collaboration and community will always take you further. And it's very necessary in places like Ghana where not everybody has. You have the have-nots yeah. as well. Yeah. And so it's kind of like this teaching of... You can go to school, for example, to learn how to be an engineer. Great. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to be an engineer? Mm -hmm. Is it just for your personal enrichment? Or are you serving a greater purpose? And is that purpose perhaps the common good? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a very big believer in the common good. Mm -hmm. And I think that we achieve the common good with a mindset of collaboration. And I would take it a step further and I would say that one of the interesting things happening in the West is the West has moved from a time when it was a lot more communal into this very individualistic period that it's in. And something that it is struggling with is the advent of social media. Because what social media is, it's really taken over and it's forcing them to think in slightly more communal ways. And you're starting to see, it's, it's like the rules of engagement on social media tend to be very toxic. So you think of Twitter, for example, sure. or you think yeah. of Facebook and... It's Just the a, fights. It's, you, the fights and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And people Bullying. are being forced to mm -hmm. learn over time that, yes, you can cancel someone, but you also run the risk of getting cancelled mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. So how authentic can you be in this space? You know, mm -hmm. people are being forced over time, very slowly, to understand that there's a value to empathy and thinking beyond yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the way the people who started the internet, like the, the Sir Tims and those guys, that's how they envisioned it at first before corporations got involved. Right, yeah. It was supposed to bring us together. Right. Think about things like crowdsourcing. Right, yeah. People who go online and they pull together, essentially, to build things. Yeah. This is a wildly African thing. Mm -hmm. And so to me, mm -hmm. I see that Africa actually has a lot to teach the rest of the world about what it means to be communal. Mm -hmm. And if we went back and we studied a lot more of that communalism in our history, it would have application today right. in spaces like the internet, yeah. in spaces like social media. Yeah. But we have that disconnect. Yeah. So I try personally, as much as I can, to think about things from the perspective of the common good. Mm -hmm. And I really think that when you think of a place like Ghana, there are two Ghanas. I think that there are people in Ghana who are thinking about, let's say, themselves and their, their families. Mm -hmm. And then there are the people who are thinking of the common good beyond that, beyond their own circles. Mm -hmm. That's why I love the counterculture scene, because there's a care that is shown for people who you do not personally know. Sure. Yeah. That's what activism is about. Yeah. And there was a point in our history where we all pulled together. Mm -hmm. And that's what brought us independence. Great. And yeah. so we've kind of moved, we've drifted from that. But I feel like we have a chance to turn the boat around and be more communal. And I'm yeah. seeing it in the music. I, I feel like culture is often a predictor of where we can go. Yes. And it's, it is how we go, yes. typically, right? Yeah. It's the creative 
arts and everything that typically moves culture and mm -hmm. moves people. And I, I like how what you said about the collaborative mindset, yeah. because I've just kind of been really thinking about this in terms of democracy and mm. democracy is, is done. Yeah, it has failed mm. Africans. Mm. However, the foundations of what it means mm -hmm. to be in a democratic society. Mm -hmm. We already we already knew that. Yes. We just had us. So that's basically what you're saying. We yeah. already had this communal mindset. We already knew. And so because democracy basically became a tool for capitalism. Yes. That's where we've we've broken down. Yeah, so if the we institutionalizing can, exactly. of democratic ideals that institution hasn't worked. Right. But the democratic ideal like you're saying, that spirit was there. Right. It's inherent. Yeah. I mean, it's tr it's actually quite inherent in people yes. as humans have evolved, right? Mm -hmm. So we, once we figured out that we have to work together to to tend the land, because exactly. that's why we're here, right? Exactly. We're here to tend it. But beyond saying this is mine and that's yours, which then that's where the capitalism comes in, mm -hmm. then we, we survived yeah. and we thrived. Yes. And so, yes, mm -hmm. collaboration. Yeah. And so in terms of it as a personal hack, mm -hmm. In my dealings with people, I try as much as I can to move with the spirit, not of competition, mm -hmm. but of collaboration. Mm -hmm. How can I help you? Right. And if I see you as being a common organism with me, yeah. then by helping you, I'm helping myself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Law school, I met, well, undergrad, I met um, Michelle Robinson, who was who was a student there. And then at law school, I met Barack. And, you know, those are relationships that came as a set, meaning that there were a whole bunch of Black people who were like Barack and, and, and Michelle. They were very... They were very ambitious. They were brilliant. They were ready to, they're ready to change the world and they are changing the world. And so that sort of network was something that was actually part of my experience. The same way that I'd had in Greensboro, North Carolina, I'm sure the same way my parents had it in Tuskegee, that all of a sudden I grew a bit more and a bit more broad and also a bit more powerful. And that group has therefore shown its power and exerted it in various places. And I just, did the I was asked to be part of a committee on a topic that's actually very interesting to me. But the most interesting part of this is not that it was an appointment by the president, but that it was run by Kathy Hughes. Mm. And Kathy Hughes is a self-made billionaire black woman who was running out of the Small Business Administration a, a council. The, the name of the council is unimportant. What's more important is the impact of what it was doing. It was studying what are the ways in which we can work with underrepresented groups in order to make sure that with government contracting and they're set, they're set aside in the United States, that those organizations have sufficient capital to be able to really expand and become key suppliers for the government as opposed to, you know, sort of opportunistic suppliers for the government. And so, because they're, you know, what is it? We just saw something from Lockheed Martin or something that's trying to create some new fighter, some fighter jet, and they have spent, what, $44 billion. So the amounts of money which are available for partnering are absolutely extreme. They're very large checks that are available, but most uh, black businesses that are working in the set-aside program are working for relatively small amounts of capital. And so the question of how do we, what is wrong and why are we not able to actually make those organizations bigger and what do we need to put in place in order to make that happen? So, and to work with Kathy Hughes, a person who's having started with one radio station and then built that into an empire, 
is was really a great privilege and a black woman being in that position i thought that was like that was that was like i was in heaven that yeah, was heaven i can imagine so before i we get into what you're doing now because that feels like it dovetails perfectly with mm -hmm. where you are now what you're doing i want to ask about glocal speak okay. so we want to hear what you hear so i ask you to share a word a phrase or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you come to value it as a glocal speak one in two black children in the uk live below the poverty line that is a mm -hmm. that just makes your blood run cold one in two, one in two. That was that figure came from 2018, before the pandemic, and before we had um, this this crisis of inflation yeah. and the crisis of the cost of living. Mm. So every time you see a black child on the street, you see two of them together. One is living in poverty. That is everything, in my opinion. And so that sort of quote is what actually keeps me up at night. The question of what what are we doing? How do we actually not take to the streets as black people, white people, whomever, yeah. underrepresented people, yeah. to say that this cannot stand and that we need to do something about this immediately? And um, why is it not the first thing on every agenda? Why is it not the first, the last thing that we that we talk about before we leave as to what is the way in which we're impacted today? That's perfect. And a segue into what you're doing now. So you are a, a co-founder mm -hmm. of. Impact X Capital. That's a double bottom line Bet investment firm. So tell us about Impact X mm -hmm. and uh, what you're doing. So back in 2018, this statistic and a few and some help from some other people helped us to say that probably we should focus on a solution. And if we're if if not us, who if not now when? So a group of people got together at a person's a friend of mine's house to talk about their 40 about 40 people who are invited black leaders from education, from government, from business, from sports, from entertainment to talk about what it is that we can do to help black Britain. And that became and there one of the things that they decided is that every solution that they came up with as a possible answer required capital. And so the question was, are we going to continue to go hat in hand to somebody else and say, believe in what we believe in, prioritize what we prioritize and keep it in your sights, no matter what else is happening in the world, or are we going to do it ourselves? And so they asked me because I'm an operating executive, uh, having spent time in the consulting firm afterward, I then went into these technology companies as an operating executive to make them grow and help them to grow and help them to flourish. And so they said, Eric, maybe you can put this together. And so from a standing start, I went out and studied where were the challenges associated with uh, funding? And was this a challenge that required um, grants? Is it a challenge that required debt and lending? Or is it a challenge that could be addressed with some other sort of means? And I put forward the hypothesis that I believe the greatest impact could be made if indeed we um, invested in companies using venture capital as the means and try and grow companies of scale that would eventually uh, get to rival some of the biggest companies you've ever seen and in the process would actually create a great deal of wealth, not only for the immediate stakeholders, employees and founders and other sorts of things, but then shareholders, et cetera. And then indeed, it would also create jobs that were future resistant. And if we did that, we would then have a change. And then within a short period of time, because the other thing is we can't take forever to do this, Black Britain could be improved mm -hmm. and we could answer, we could address that concern. So mm -hmm. that's how uh, ImpactX came about. We expanded the vision a little bit, not just to the UK, but to Europe. We decided, I did some research about where were their pockets of opportunity, i.e. both there were individuals who participated in industry sectors for a while, and they had also been successful and then been 
able to see sort of all and been able to see cycles of growth and contraction, et cetera, and therefore could come up with disruptive solutions that were going to work. And then from there, make that into uh, a question of sort of what was going to be our investment thesis, what kind of money would we be investing, what sort of size checks at what stage, and what would be the return possibilities. And that became ImpactX, mm. which now invests in digital technology, health education, well-being, and media and entertainment in Europe and the UK and uh, focuses specifically on underrepresented people because there's a market inefficiency. Proportionate capital doesn't go to women and people of color or to other underrepresented groups and or to other underrepresented groups. And so we take that market inefficiency as, an, as a great reason to um, think of be can recast as an opportunity and we invest in that opportunity for market scale returns and then job creation. Mm, mm -hmm. That's what I do. So the millions of dollars question. <laughs> so your first bottom line is, of course, returns, right? Absolutely. And then the second bottom line is the impact. Job creation. Job it's creation. Just so, job creation. So, it, so that is the metric. That's so it is really metric. about how many metrics. Yeah. Okay. How many jobs do we create? And, okay. for, and for women and people of color, we actually on a quarterly basis measure with our investment com with companies in which we invest, which are called our portfolio companies, we ask them to tell us how many people of color and how has that changed from quarter to quarter? Sure. If there's ever a problem with it, we then sort of help them to come up with a plan to make sure they get back on the right track. So do you look at also kind of the turnover of the, the company's funds or revenues in communities, underrepresented communities? It's just the capital and it's the just, business doing the business. What we know is there are all sorts, there's been a great study called Give Black, Mm -hmm. which is about black philanthropy. It's specifically focused on the UK and it shows that black people disproportionately use their um, capital in order to underwrite particular types of projects, which are black projects mm -hmm. that, and it can be education, it can be church, it can be early childhood, whatever it is. And that that money, when they have more, actually goes more toward black organizations. So what we do know is that Black people tend to, and women tend to hire more black people and women. They tend to promote more black people and women. They tend to share with more black people and women. And then when capital is available, they have a tendency to over-index in terms of then mm. reinvesting in black people. Thanks for joining us for this Black History Month compilation. As always, you can catch new episodes of the podcast at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, share, subscribe. Leave us a review. 100 in 2024. That's our goal. It helps others find great content on the internet. Until next time. Bye for now. <laughs>